All right, well, it's very good to be with you again. Um, now, I'm really going to do my very best to keep this within about 45 minutes, but the, the sad part of that is this, is this is probably of the four lectures, the one that you really need to, to um, be awake for. And it's right after lunch. <laughs> so guess what? This is going to be a struggle. Um, and thank you. And at, that, at some point, if I'm not mistaken, during this presentation, we also have some slides, correct? Pardon me? They'll just appear. That's an amazing thing. Um, so, away we go. Let me just put that here. My child, writes Hugh St. Victor in 1130, my child, knowledge is a treasury and your heart is its strong box. These words were addressed to the novices of the Cathedral School, School of St. Victor in a book detailing noteworthy biblical facts entitled Chronicles. The book is called Chronicles. Now, the metaphor of a strong box, Hugh actually uses the Latin word arca, so we can also simply translate arc instead of strong box, was an important term to this Parisian teacher. As we'll see, he uses it in at least three of his works, not just in his book Chronicles, and with a variety of meanings. Each time, though, he, his use centers on the functioning of memory. Hugh was heir to a rich tradition of reflection on the role of memory. Before entering into a deeper discussion of his views on it, and also on his use of the arc metaphor, it, it'll be worthwhile to trace some of the key moments of the tradition which he drew, both classical and Christian. My purpose here is, is to relate memory to character formation. I've cautioned several times already against the notion of treating catechesis as simply conveying factual information. There's no such thing as pure nature. Nor is there such a thing as pure fact, therefore. The world around us is a sacramental image of eternal realities. And our aim with catechesis is a mystagogical one, as we saw this morning. The aim is to guide students from the sacrament to the reality. That's a purpose that reaches well beyond simply memorizing events. Now, the practical problem in our churches is not typically that they are too fact-oriented. The problem is not that our priests or catechists are overloading people with information. The problem is the exact opposite, as we all know. We no longer know the scriptures. And we've largely lost the memory of our Christian past. The reason Alex is starting up the Institute for the Renewal of Christian Catechesis is not that catechism teaching is doing so well and is flourishing. It is rather that catechism teaching has fallen on hard times. So, not coincidentally, has memorization more broadly. And so in this session, I want to put in a good word, a good word for both. That is to say, both catechism teaching, and memorization more broadly. 
To my mind, catechesis needs memorization. Learning by heart is indispensable for Mr. Gaiji. The reason is not that facts are just facts. So the more you have in your brains, the better it is. The reason is precisely the opposite. Because pure facts don't exist, because facts are always more than facts, the things you commit to memory are more than just facts. They make up who you are. Indeed, when we look at how memory was thought to function in the classical and medieval worlds, it becomes clear that throughout history, people have recognized that memory is indispensable to the development of our identity. It is the contents of the mind's stored, recondere is the Latin term often used, stored in the memory, and then gathered, colligere is the verb there, gathered from there in the act of reminiscence, which provides the requisite stability that we all long for as human beings. So there's a storing, recondere, which is memorizing, and subsequently, there is a gathering, colligera, of what is in the mind. For many in the tradition, it is how we order the contents of what we have stored that determines what kind of a person we become. Memorizing some things rather than others. Say the creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, rather than perhaps the latest NFL heroes or Hollywood stars, shapes us in a particular fashion. Memorization, which for Hugh of St. Victor is closely linked to meditation, feeds either virtue or vice. Memory is linked to character. And so also to our mystagogical entry into the life of God as we know it in Jesus Christ. Now, in the classical period, memory was a topic usually discussed in the context of rhetoric, both among the followers of Cicero and among the adherents of Quintilian, who formed the two most influential schools of thought in later tradition. In the first century BC, the Roman philosopher Cicero wrote some of the most significant works on rhetoric. Memorization was treated as a skill to be mastered for the purposes of public speech. Memory was considered an art, ars memorativa, memorative art, memory art, which one could learn and develop. A book called The Rhetorica Ad Herenium Rhetorics for Herennius, I have no idea who Herennius was and nobody appears to know. Doesn't really matter. But people, the book gained in significance because people thought it was written by Cicero and it's very similar to Cicero's rhetoric. That book, Rhetorica ad Herennium, illustrates well how the memorative art functioned. It speaks of memory as a treasure house of the ideas. In discussing what he calls artificial memory, that is, memory with which we're not born, but that instead we're trained in. This book, Adherenium, explains the importance of what we may call places or backgrounds 
loci, it's a Latin term for places, backgrounds, loci, for the task of memorizing. The artificial memory, it says in this book, the artificial memory includes backgrounds and images, locis et, imagi et imaginibus, backgrounds or places and images. By backgrounds, it says, I mean such scenes as are naturally or artificially set off on a small scale, complete and conspicuous, so that we can grasp and embrace them easily by the natural memory. For example, a house, an intercolumnar space, space between the columns, a recess, something that's set back, an arch, or the like. Those are all loci, all places within which you can put things. And then it goes on, an image that you can put in those places, in those backgrounds. An image is, as it were, a figure, a mark, or a portrait of the object that we wish to remember. For example, if we wish to recall a horse, a lion, or an eagle, then we must place its image in the definite background. Now that method of loci et imaginibus, sorry, loci et imagines, places, backgrounds on the one hand, and images on the other, that method provides a support system, both of places, which serve as compartments, house, set of columns, recess, arch, and of images, horse, lion, eagle, that the student can place within those places, within those backgrounds. So we can turn to that. Oh, we have it, all, have it up there already. So on the left side, you have the various loci, various places. And in this case, it's, it's, it's a monastery. Um, on the top left, you have the uh, Barbitonsor, the barber. And beside it, you have the Bellator, the fighter house. Yeah, there's the uh, Bibliorda, uh, let me see, Bibliopoia, rather, a bookseller. You have the Abatia, the Abbey. Uh, there's the butchery, Bovichida, herdsman, Bubulkas, all Latin terms for various things that are necessary for the running of a, of, a, of a monastery. And within each of these places, you can place images from the right, right side. Um, it actually says, if you look at the letters at the very top, A-V-L-A spells aula, and then underneath there, one-third down, biblioteca, and then again, one-third down, capella. And then under each, you have various numbers going all the way up to 30. And each of these 30, 30 images, you can place within the various compartments, within the various loci, the various backgrounds. Now, this book, Adherenium, suggests that when we're reminded of images associated with various backgrounds, we can easily recall what each image refers to and where it fits within the overall structure. Once we have committed to memory the entire architectural framework, and if you live in the monastery, this one is easy to, recall, to remember, of course. Once you've done that, along with the contents, you can then access it from anywhere within the framework. And you go to the one particular hall or the one particular room, and immediately you know what it is that you've placed in it. It doesn't matter where in the structure of places we start out in our mind, so long as we know which place, which locus, goes with which image, we can recall its contents. For example, if we're going to have the next image here, 
For example, in case this is a little complex to figure out, um, if we have a lawyer, here's somebody who seems to have died or, or by, by falling off a ladder or so, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here, and uh, some knights picking him up. But if you have a lawyer, uh, this is the example of, from Adherenium, defending an accused person of poisoning someone, then I might try to remember the accusation how, as a lawyer. How might I, how might I try to remember exactly what's been going on? Well, I might fill the first memory locus with an image of a man who lies ill in bed, holding a cup in his hand as a reminder that this person's been poisoned. So that's one approach that um, was common through the classical period, the locus or the loci et imagines method. Now, a later approach from the Spanish rhetorician Quintilian in the first century AD was at least as influential as Cicero. He wrote a 12-volume book, no less, on rhetoric uh, toward the end of the first century, entitled The Orator's Education. In this book, Quintilian outlines his own distinctive approach to memory, which was, which was critical of the loci et imagines method that we're seeing on the picture. So Quintilian acknowledges that, yes, images can be useful, sure enough, but he's much less confident that if it's actually individual words that we want to remember, that that's going to be helpful with this method because we would need a picture for every word. He writes, will not the run of our speech actually be held up by this double effort of memorizing? How can we produce a continuous flow of words if we have to refer to a distinct symbol for every individual word? In other words, Quintilian worries that with this earlier Ciceronian approach, we're forced to remember not just the words, but also on top of that, the images that go into the various loci. Memorization, in other words, has actually become more difficult, he says, not easier. And so Quintilian suggests what he says is something much simpler, his word. Namely, to cut down a section of text that you want to commit to memory into short pieces, which simply need to be learned by heart. And in particular, he says, what makes it easier to do this? Well, if we go to the um, next image here, um, by making sure that we, if we have a, a wax tablet on which we write, that we use the same thing all the time, that we don't switch backgrounds all the time. Here you have one example of that. Um, why is the text on the right page easy to remember? Because you'll store in your mind where a word fits in relationship to each of the decorations that are around it. All these decorations are not just decoration for decoration's sake. They're also not for the sake of giving glory to God, though they certainly do that. But they also help us, very basically, to memorize. So you don't want to switch to a different book with the same text next time around. You, you, you're reading the same thing. 
because it's going to confuse your mind. But using the same text all the time is what Quintilian is saying. It'll be much easier to memorize. Now, Christians in the early Middle Ages typically followed Quintilian rather than the earlier Cicero. Many people were apprehensive, fearful of the fanciful architectonics of the loci et imagines tradition. And the logic behind this much more austere approach to memorizing, whatever it may be, um, there's a couple of factors, at least, that probably enter into it. Part of it is Quintilian's observation that we already saw. Memorizing individual words by means of images in a whole text is extremely cumbersome. Especially if you have to commit a large block, say an entire Psalter, to memory. Doing that with a loci et imagines approach, you'll be busy for a long time. And also, presumably in some circles, say the Cistercians, later on the Puritans, um, there may have been a desire to simplify for fear um, of idolatry linked with images. Now, Hughes and Victor, while he's somewhat complex in terms of what he uses, the approach he uses, for the most part, actually follows the early Middle Ages in using this simpler method of Quintilian. The Chronicles that I mentioned to you already has no fewer than 37 large folios of tables, columns, basically column upon column, diagram upon diagram, outlining biblical and church history, all of which the novices have to memorize. Now, to help them in that extremely, it reminds me of my days in seminary, actually. We had to memorize tons of stuff in seminary. <laughs> but to help them in that daunting task of committing these various persons, places, and dates to memory, what Hugh does is he provides some guidelines to memorization in the preface. He elaborates on the metaphor of the heart as an ark, a strong box. When he comments like this, he writes, as you study all of knowledge, you store up for yourselves good treasures, immortal treasures, incorruptible treasures, which never decay, nor lose the beauty of their brightness. In the treasure house of wisdom are various sorts of wealth, and many filing places in the storehouse, in the arca of your heart. So the filing places in the treasure house or in the storehouse, the arca of your heart. So the ark is, sorry, the heart is a strong box, an arca, that has numerous compartments, which are really like loci, the earlier loci, numerous compartments each with its own treasure. Gold, silver, precious jewels, they all get their own place so that some kind of orderly arrangement results. The purpose of that careful arrangement is to illumine our understanding and so to secure our memory. Now, Hugh's preface to the Chronicles offers a method to classifying memory items that's Pretty straightforward. Though he does use um, 
So though he does use memory boxes or compartments, these loci, he does not encourage his students to conjure up images in their mind. Instead, instead of images put, to put in loci, he says, he says instead, matters that are learned are classified in the memory, he says, in three ways. By way of number, location, and occasion. And so all the things which you may have heard, he writes, you will both readily capture in your intellect and retain for a long time in your memory if you have learned to classify them according to these three categories. So instead of pictures, images, he uses number, location, and occasion. So what are they? Well, with, with, in terms of number, Hugh recommends that we visualize a sequence of numbers beginning with one. He takes Psalms, the Psalms, memorizing the Psalms as an example. And he says, associate the first line of each of the 150 Psalms, which is the incipit, we often call that, right? The first line, the beginning of the first line of, the, of each Psalm, the incipit, associate it with a number. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, the incipit, right? Blessed is the man. Why have the Gentiles raged, Psalm 2? Why, O oh Lord, are they multiplied, Psalm 3? And he says, this much is kept in the first, second, and third compartments. So once you've linked each of the 150 Psalms to a number, and each number with an incipit, with these first lines, once you've got all of that in your memory, then he says, do the same thing for each individual psalm. So number the lines of the psalm and start memorizing which line, which number of which line, which, which number in, in, in the psalm goes with which words. So when you say eight, say line 8 in this particular psalm, you know exactly which words go with it because that's how you memorized the contents of that psalm. The upshot, he says, is, and I'm quoting him, I can thereafter easily retain in my heart the whole series, one verse at a time. First by dividing and marking off the book by psalms, all 150, and then each psalm by verses. I've reduced a large amount of material to such conciseness and brevity. This is a daunting task, right? <laughs> That's number, memorizing by number. Second, by location. And here he recommends making a mental picture of a given section of a page, such as, for example, the image that we have there still. He uses the same example, too, that Quintilian uses. He says, when a boy changes copies of a text between readings, well, that renders it much more difficult to memorize. We remember a text much more easily when we impress on our minds the particulars of the writing. He writes, the color, right over there, the color, shape, position, placement of the letters, where, we've seen the, where we have seen this or that written, in what part, in what location, the top, middle, the bottom of the page, where we saw it positioned, in what color we observed the trace of the letter or the ornamented surface of the parchment. All of these things, right? Shape, color, position of the letters, they all help commit the text to memory. 
And then finally, there is occasion, tempus, time, occasion. Here he encourages the student to remember at what point he has read something. So when did you read it, he says. At a later time, we may be able to recall to our mind a memory of the content as we remember what occasion, that one occasion was at night, another by day, one in winter, another in summer, another in cloudy weather, another in sunshine. Right? You all know where you were on 9-11, <laughs> or at least many of us do, or other prominent occasions. He says, make that your default approach to memorizing. Know when you were, were, or where you were, what occasion it was. In short, when we systematically apply the categories of number, location, and occasion, we facilitate the process of memorizing a particular text. And so we can not just understand something we've read, but we can also retrieve it again, so as to make it useful. Indeed, he writes, the whole usefulness of education consists only in the memory of it. For just as having heard something doesn't profit someone who doesn't understand, likewise, having understood is not valuable to one who either will not or cannot remember. Right? It's kind of like that he basically is pointing out two problems with our use of computers. <laughs> Right? One is, computer page changes all the time. I go like that with my fingers, and all of a sudden, the words become much bigger and much less fits on the page. In other words, my page has changed just by going like that. Makes it difficult to memorize. When I scroll through my Bible on my app, right? When I scroll through it, um, that's not like having a page that's constantly the same. No, it constantly changes. Makes it much more difficult to memorize. That's one problem. And the other problem to which he alludes um, is having it at your fingertips in the computer isn't the same as having it here. That's a much bigger problem, actually. Right? We tend to think, as long as I have it on my computer, I can call it back as soon as I need it. And look at all the stuff I've got there. I'm in a far better position than anybody else before me, right? No, you're in a far worse position because you've got nothing in your mind, right? <laughs> and what you don't have in your mind is not actually useful to you. Um, at some point, I was listening for, in preparation for this to some lectures by this uh, homeschooling organization I was listening to, actually to a lecture by Ralph Wood. And it wasn't Ralph Wood, it was one of his colleagues there speaking at that conference who said, you know, when you... Um, at some point, the more you rely on this external information that you no longer have in your head, you won't even know what questions to ask anymore because you don't have the internal tools anymore to actually um, ask what is or what is not of importance to ask. So something needs to be in your head <laughs> in order to ask the right questions. And something needs to be in your head also to facilitate the right human responses to those questions. All right. Hughes Chronicles um, use an architectural system of columns, I mentioned, rather similar to that used in Arterenium. But he does not fill the columns with images, right? 
He doesn't fill the loci as in the earlier loci et imagines approach. Instead, he fills those columns with all kinds of biblical and church historical data. He avoids the problem that way of having to memorize, memorize both images and actual topics of words, which is far too complex. And that's something, of course, that Quirinium already recognized as being far too complex. And so Hugh instead directly enters the topics or the words that he wants his novices to remember. He enters them directly into the columns, providing, um, or actually that way, avoiding images altogether. And in the preface, what he does instead is he gives practical suggestions for how to remember the biblical and church historical material that's in the columns. In this way, Hugh hopes the treasures of Scripture will be transferred to the minds of the students and the arca of the page be replicated or transformed into the arca of the heart. Now, Hugh uses that same imagery of box, chest, arca, also in another work, a very broad-ranging curricular guide, also curriculum, called the Didascalicon. I think he outlined if it's the word Didascalion. There's a C, I think, that's it's my fault that split, uh, fell out there. I, gave, I passed it on wrong. But it's Didascalicon. It's written in the 1130s, same as uh, the Chronicles. And Hugh here describes the main function of memory as that of gathering. Again, colligere, gathering. And he describes, he defines that as follows. He says, gathering is reducing to a brief and compendious outline, a summa, he calls it, a, a brief outline, things that have been written or discussed at some length. And he calls that outline or that summa, he also refers to it as an epilogue or a short restatement, recapitulation actually is the term, or a principle, on which the entire subject matter is based, all slimmed down into this brief summa. And so he says, rather than having to follow the winding paths of all these various streams, all kinds of individual details, he says, lay hold upon the source of the stream, right? Lay hold upon the source and you have the whole thing. The reason for that recommendation has to do with the way in which our memory functions. He, he says, he writes, I say this because the memory of man is dull. Amen to that. <laughs> Certainly true for me. The memory of man is dull and likes brevity. And if it is dissipated on many things, dissipation is a huge problem, right, in a number of ways. If it is dissipated upon many things, it has less to bestow on each of them. We ought, therefore, in all that we learn, to gather up, collegiate, to collect, right, to gather up brief and dependable abstracts to be stored in the little chest of the memory. Beautiful word he uses there, arcula. He doesn't use arca but he uses a diminutive, arcula, the little chest, the little arc, so that later on, when the need arises, we can derive something else from them. These 
one must often turn over in the mind these, these, these little things that you've kept in the mind, these brief abstracts. Often turn them over in your mind, he says, and regurgitate from the stomach. In another huge theme in medieval literature, already in patristic literature. Right? You're, you're, you're um, um, thinking of a term here. Chewing the cud all the time, right? You're bringing it back up and regurgitating it from the stomach of the memory, which is an Augustinian term. To taste them, he says, lest by strong inattention to them, they disappear. Now, I see some people grin because it's a really grim image, of course, <laughs> you know, chewing the cud and, and tasting it yet again. <laughs> but okay, that's, that's the idea here. Now, Hugh uses, as I said, that diminutive, diminutive, diminutive term, arcula, a little arc, right? Um, and I think what he does is by that word, he, he wants to underline the, the precious character of the strong box of the heart and of its context, contents. And after we have been reading, he says, and reading in Latin is legere, after we've been reading, we then, well, in English, we have a totally different word. We gather it, but in Latin, it's almost the same word, collegera. We gather back up together, put the letters together again, as it were, the little parts, the many disparate elements. How do we do that? Well, we by classifying them in the various compartments of the little arc, little chest. So memorizing reduces many items to one principle, from the many to the one, to the summa. And then... Recollecting it is you unpack it again. The didascalicon, this curriculum of Hugh, and by the way, it's not just a curriculum for catechesis, though it is that too, but the first three, the first half of the book basically is, is a very general curriculum in general. It's an awesome curriculum. Those of you who are into perhaps you know, classical education will love Hugh, St. Victor. Uh, Okay, that's a different story, but an important one. Uh, the didascalicon gives memory a place within the overall functioning of all books of, 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 or, or all items of the liberal arts curriculum. And in particular, he deals with, um, with memorizing in the context, interestingly, not of general education, but he focuses on it when he talks about lexio and meditatio, reading and meditating, of scripture that is. So he's interested here in the broader formation of his students. And memory, he says, memory serves meditation. Reading something repeatedly and mulling it over and going over it again in your mind and with your lips and mouth anchors the contents in the student's mind facilitates meditation, and therefore mystagogy into the life of God. Um, now, the metaphor that I already mentioned of chewing the cod, tasting, chewing, digesting, regurgitating, it's not simply an evocative metaphor for this repetitive act of memorizing, but it also makes clear that Hugh believed Memorizing shapes who we are. It shapes our character. It's not just about fa getting facts in your head. It's about getting, well, fact, mere facts don't exist, right? But it's about getting 
things to shape your character. Just like food is digested and becomes our body, so ruminative reading, meditative reading, memorative reading, you could almost say, becomes part of us. Which is why you don't want to change Bible translations every other week. Or, yeah, lots of things, right, into the connection with the liturgy. Changing them every other week means you can't shape characters. Because characters have to do with memory. All right, it's a really touchy subject with me, so don't get me going. <laughs> so, somewhat anachronistically put, memorizing for theologians such as Hugh wasn't simply a matter of mentally storing away pure facts, right? Chewing the cud wasn't just a, corp a corporeal metaphor for a strictly met a mental process. No, the metaphor had appeal for Hugh and for many others because they recognized memorizing is a profoundly physical act. Talked about the body earlier, right? You can't separate them. Jean Leclerc makes this comment. He says, for the ancients to meditate is to read a text and to learn it by heart in the fullest sense of this expression. That is, with one's whole being, with the body, since the mouth pronounced it, with the memory that fixes it, with the intelligence that understands its meaning, with the will which desires to put it, to put it into practice. So memorization for Hugh was one of a number of elements that involved every aspect of that person, one's being. His curriculum was grounded in the conviction that by chewing the cud, students would unconsciously allow the words by memorizing to give shape to their being, to their character. And of course, as you grow older, you consciously begin to do this. Memorization is ultimately a matter of character formation. Now, despite borrowing from Quintilian in the preface to the Chronicles, Hugh actually did, in some ways, explore the use of the earlier images. That goes back all the way to Cicero, before Christ's birth. And he, but he uses not the kind of images, the violent images that we saw there, which raises all sorts of questions about what kind of violent images you want to store in your mind. No, he used actually mostly symbols. Um, and his understanding of the mind as an arca, a strong box of treasures, or an ark of the memory, a chest of memory, as he also calls it, is an example of the way in which he uses these symbolic images. The term arca referred to all sorts of boxes. Hugh was fond of thinking of Noah's arca um, as useful, uh, as a useful way of implementing Cicero's approach in some ways. In his, he has a long treatise of, of five books, actually, on Noah's Ark, uh, De Arca Noah Morali, um, the, the, about the moral Ark of Noah. And he describes the Ark there as being like a storehouse. And here the word for storehouse is apotheca. Um, filled with all manner of delightful things. So this Ark is all, has all kinds of compartments, right, for all kinds of animals. And we fill it now with all kinds of delightful things. 
You will look for nothing in it that you will not find. And when you found one thing, you'll see many things spread out before your eyes. They're all the works of restoration. He's thinking in terms of creation and restoration. Restoration is like redemption. Um, all the works of restoration are contained in all their fullness from the world's beginning to its end. So the apotheca, the storehouse or the warehouse or the cellar, that word apotheca was a useful metaphor because you could easily envision it as made up of numerous loci, numerous places or backgrounds, numerous rooms really in the ark. And the contents, the symbols, you could then commit to memory and remember which symbol, by remembering which symbol goes to which room in the ark. Not only does Noah's ark contain many places that we can fill with symbols, but by meditating on this whole structure, by meditating on it, by memorizing the meanings associated with the ark, you could turn your own mind into an ark, like Noah's ark. An ark of wisdom, as he calls it. An arca sapientiae. Now, it's actually, I said five parts. There's actually four parts to this book, with a fifth one that actually has a separate title, and it's called A Little Book on Constructing Noah's Ark. Now he's going to teach you and me how to do it, right? And there, he really shows himself to be an heir to that earlier loci et imagines tradition. He describes, in this fifth book, he describes an actual picture of Noah's Ark. He doesn't give us the picture, but he describes it as a kind of treasure house, a, a thesaurus, a strong box with numerous levels, numerous rooms that map details, again, both of the history of salvation and church history, and also of the individual spiritual lives of believer, believers. As I said, unfortunately, we don't have the actual sketch. He never left us with that, and it's not clear whether or not there ever has been such a thing, such a sketch. Certainly he describes it, but the way he talks about it makes it look in certain places. He refers to a sketch, so presumably there was one at some point. Um, one second here, making sure that... Oh, let's... Let's maybe go to the next, oh, it's already up there. So, now this may not look like much of an ark to you, but it is. Um, uh, ark is, you, you can see the ark in the very center of the square box. That's actually the ark of Noah for, for Hugh, believe it or not. That's the ark of Noah, the, the, the blue and white and red in the middle. That's the ark of Noah. And then he, he sketches the entire he sketches the, the world around it in the green. He sketches the cosmos with the, with the planets around it in the circle. Um, the entire universe gets sketched around the ark of Noah and around the various meanings that that ark gets to have in our lives. And fascinating, I mean, this is in many ways Christological. I'm not going to go into all the details here. We don't have time. But you see the Christ figure at the top. He is embracing the entire thing. That's, that, to my mind, is one of the most beautiful things of, of, the, of, this, of this image because everything is Christological, Christologically centered. In fact, no, uh, he is so, so Christological, Hugh, that in the very center of the ark, 
You didn't know that, but there is a tree of life. There was a tree of life in there. <laughs> At least according to, to you, there was. There was a tree of life. And the tree of life is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it reaches all the way to the top. And he has all sorts of things to say about that. So, and he meditates on that at length. Um, even though it's not even in the biblical account. It doesn't matter too much for him. What matters is what builds up, right? <laughs> and what helps us to get, get in our minds the, the, the thing that leads us to the life of God. Mr. God, Jesus' purpose. And then, of course, there are the two angels, just as the ark in the, in the, um, in the most holy place, in the Holy of Holies. Um, now, that's a, a, a sketch that some scholar has drawn up uh, with the help of this libellus, this little booklet um, that, that Hugh has written. Very complex, right? And you think, my, I get tired just looking at this. How am I ever going to commit this to memory? Well, that's because you and I have too many books. But Hugh is expecting his novices to actually, yes, commit this to memory. And once you have this in your mind, it is a powerful mnemonic tool, right? Because now you locate every item here, and you're reminding yourself constantly of how it is functioning in your spiritual journey, or how something is functioning within the narrative of salvation. So by spending time with all these intricate details, the reader was supposed to internalize this over time, commit to memory the various meanings of the ark. The purpose, although it may sound strange for you and me today, but the purpose was to make it easier for Noah's ark and for the ark of the reader's mind to become one and the same thing, an ark of wisdom. So the purpose is formation of wisdom. Now, the, the imagery of an arca was useful in highlighting the precious character of the contents one was memorizing. But the metaphor had its limits. In an important sense, for Hugh and others, the mind was much more than a strong box filled with treasures. After all, the mind was not just a static object to be filled with contents of pure facts. The mind has a moral dimension. One author, Mary Carothers, who's in your bibliography, she points out that biblically speaking, to remember something is not just an intellectual thing, but also an affective thing. She writes this, the matters memory presents are used to persuade and to motivate, to create emotion, stir the will. And I skip a few lines. Though it's certainly a form of knowing, recollecting is also a matter of will, of being moved, preeminently a moral activity, rather than what we think of as, an, as intellectual or rational. In other words, we're going back here to what Sean earlier talked about when he mentioned James K.A. Smith. Right? His understanding of catechesis is not just intellectual, though obviously the intellect matters deeply, but also a matter of desire, also a matter of the will. Desire and the imagination play an important role in memorizing. Carothers points out, people often treated memory images as composed of two elements. First, just the likeness, like the correspondence between image and mind, what we think of as memory often, but then also 
intention, which he calls intensio, intention. And that is a person's inclination, an attitude that colors the experience that emotionally shapes your memory, your memory, right? When a dog's been abused when it was small, like Paul and Page's dog, and when you go like that, right, that dog, I don't know what it's going to do, but it's not going to be happy, right? Because there is an intensio to the memory of the dog. There, the experience is emotionally colored. The contents of the mind is, when it comes to human beings, therefore, closely linked to the life of virtue. Hugh wrote his four books on Noah's Ark as a follow-up to a discussion that he had with fellow monks about the instability and the restlessness of the human heart. See, that's what this is all about. The instability and restlessness of the human heart, which prevents us from having rest. How is it caused, that instability, that restlessness? What well, comes from disordered desire, which craves distractions of earthly things, prevents us from focusing, as like we talked this, mo this morning, prevents us from focusing on heavenly things. And so Hugh explains the remedy to disordered desire is what? Well, it's Noah's Ark, saving us from the storms of rage against the church and against the soul. Guiding the church, he writes, through the storms of this life, as it were, the ark in the flood. And so he says, Christ brings her at last to the haven of eternal rest. Now, memory itself isn't actually the main topic of these books on Noah's Ark. He actually doesn't often mention it explicitly, but it is a hidden key in the book because memory is an antidote to what Hugh does explicitly say is the problem, namely this aimless wandering that you and I always do, right? This, which, which is often fed by our curiosity, curiositas, right? Curiosity, going here, there, and everywhere. I mean, I need to remind myself constantly, or rather my wife needs to remind me constantly to put away my stupid cell phone, right? Because it's just distraction. It's all it is. Um, and so the real vice of memory, says Carothers, isn't forgetting. The opposite isn't really forgetting, although in some sense, of course, it is. But the real opposite of, of memory is disorder. Curiosity. And so Noah's Ark helps giving order. It reorders the monk's wandering thoughts. It reshapes his memories. If you're tending to wander in your mind, places you shouldn't be going, there's the Ark. Gives you safety, right? You're calling it back to mind. Now, some of the things that I've told you about, you think, where does Hugh get all this stuff? Well, Hugh doesn't care so much. <laughs> Hugh is not a historical reader primarily. He is that too. But, but he's interested in helping us focus our wandering thoughts by suggesting memorizing key aspects of the Christian faith that gives us peace, give us peace and stability. And so he maps for us 
central aspects of the Christian faith and life. How much time do I have? We're really, really doing well here, right? Page 17 of 24, five minutes. Doing really well. Yeah, we're right. So, for Hugh then, for Hugh then, ordered thoughts lead to ordered lives. Put differently, a properly trained memory helps the life of virtue. At one point, as he discusses three stories of the ark, three levels, he explains they denote three kinds of thoughts. Right thoughts, profitable thoughts, and necessary thoughts. Now, that distinction is really interesting. Right thoughts by themselves don't help any. It's like the devil knows God exists and he shudders kind of thing. (laughs) Then profitable thoughts, well, that's good um, because now you're performing them. You're doing virtues, plural. But necessary thoughts is being so habituated that you can't think but else. So you're, you're quote-unquote, now automatically attuned to a certain mode of life in your thoughts and in your actions. Educational trends, friends, educational trends today don't favor rote memorization. We all know that. Rote memorization is incompatible, so our culture tends to think, incompatible with critical thinking and with conceptual learning. My wife's elementary school teacher, and I can't share with you how frustrated she usually is that you know, nobody seems to believe that timetables actually matter at all. Now, Hughes' writings, I think, serve as a valuable antidote upholding the role of memory as one component in a broader pedagogical strategy. In particular, Hugh allows us to recognize three indispensable benefits of memorization. First, memorization contributes to who we are. Contributes to who we are. It gives us a sense of identity. The way we store and recollect past sense perceptions determines how we make sense of the world. Right? We all know of aging parents with dementia and other related diseases. We all know from those experiences that this has to do with the loss of identity, which is precisely why it's so terribly, terribly hard. Our memories are invariably colored, which is to say we have positive or negative associations with our memories. And the way we evaluate them has to do with our desires and aims. These desires, these intentions, shape who we are. And so the interaction between sense perceptions on the one hand and our intellectual slash affective evaluations, that's how you and I are formed as human beings. We are formed in some sense, I'd almost say, by nothing but our memory. It is our memory that is our tradition. Monitoring sense perception, therefore, by favoring the intake of what is true, good, and beautiful, 
as well as deliberately and repeatedly recalling some rather than other things which have been placed in our minds is a way of fostering spiritual development. All animals have memory. I mentioned the example of the dog. One thing the dog does not have is the capacity deliberately to recall or gather what has been learned. Aristotle refers to this as a distinction between memoria and reminiscentia, memory and recollection, a distinction that makes for a uniquely human identity. Only humans have recollection power. Without memories stored in our minds, our minds will be empty. An empty memory, as we all know, detrimentally affects our identity. Without memories, we have no experiences on which to base our prudential decisions. Thomas Aquinas and others, they don't deal with memory in the context of rhetoric. No, these Christian theologians deal with memory in the context of virtue, and specifically the virtue of prudence. It is memory that allows us to make prudential decisions. So the uniquely human ability of recollection makes clear that memory is tied to the will and so to human freedom. Memory allows us to aim for the telos, the purpose for which we've been made. We need to recall Mary Carother's observation that the great vice of memoria is not forgetting, but disorder. By downplaying or disparaging memory, we fail to uphold, what makes, to uphold what makes us uniquely human. And we render ourselves incapable of advancing in our own spiritual pilgrimage, of passing on a larger tradition. Second, second, second conclusion here. Because memory has to do both with the past and with the future, as I mentioned, it is also connected to character and virtue. Throughout the classical and Christian traditions, scholars have recognized that virtue depends on memory. Hugh's entire curriculum of the Didascalicon aims at character formation, right? The three stories, right thoughts, profitable thoughts, necessary thoughts. None of this is moralism, and I cautioned enough against moralism to hope that you will believe me here. Nothing has to do, is here about moralism, but it is about virtue shaping, about character shaping. The entire arc is Christ-shaped, remember, can't be moralistic. It is all about participation in Christ. We are being conformed to Christ as our memory is grounded in the biblical story and in biblical tradition. Education that takes memory seriously is education that also takes human character and virtue seriously. And finally, memorizing and meditating are for Hugh of St. Victor one and the same thing. The common tropes of chewing the cud and regurgitating were a way of articulating that memorizing is meditating. Or at the very least, without memory, you cannot meditate. The repeated recalling of the stored content is meditation or reflection. And the link between those two, memory and meditation, reminds us 
that memory is indispensable to the spiritual aim of meditative reading, of Lectio Divina. For Hugh, this was a sustained practice of biblical engagement. There were steps by way of an ascent into God. Contemplation, the final step in that series of Lectio Divina, of divine reading. Contemplation being a foretaste of our future reward. He writes, you see then how perfection comes to those ascending by means of these steps, so that he who has remained below cannot keep ascending. Memorizing in the liberal arts, and especially in biblical teaching, was an essential step for Hugh in our ascent to God. The very top of the ark, atop of the, um, of the uh, tree of life, is a little cubicle, which is also in the book of Gen- mentioned in the book of Genesis, actually. A little cubicle. One cubit by one cubit by one cubit. For Hugh, it refers to Jesus Christ. God himself in Jesus Christ as a picture of contemplation. And that, for Hugh, and I think it should be for all of us, was a picture of the aim of memory, the aim of meditation, namely to know God in Jesus Christ. Thank you. say something. Um, I've, I've, I really appreciated that talk. Um, I wish you would have said more about the future in memory, uh, because I do think that uh, catechetically, especially with regard to mystagogy, the memory functions eschatologically um, to focus us upon the future, um, specifically the future of the beatific vision. Um, and uh, and I've, I've thought quite a bit about how um, catechesis and liturgical catechesis particularly um, lead us to memory, uh, which lead us to, to, to meditate on the future, on the eschatological future, and the eschatological end of human life. So that's just a quick thought, which is that, um, well, and also what Augustine says in Book 11 of the Confessions, I think about memory is really important, that, that by, by through, through the memory, we, we make the past come into the present. We also make the present more full, um, and we are more thoughtful about the present. But it also allows us to think forward, not even just about the eschatological future, but just about what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, and this, is, this is a deep problem of virtue today, I think, is that many people are not thoughtful or meditative about tomorrow or next week or next month or larger questions of vocation. Um, Memory is deeply helpful in that. Um, not only to not only to recollect the past, but to but to consider um, what what future um, God has in store for us. Thank you. Is this even working? I think it's dead. No, no, it's on. no it's on. Well, I'll just speak up. Um, <laughs> or do I need to switch it? We need the recording. <laughs> Yeah, right. 
wasn't me. As long as it wasn't my fault. <laughs> um, that, that reminds me, Lee, I think it's John Zizulis, the Eastern Orthodox theologian, who says that the Eucharist is a memory of the future, a dangerous memory of the future. Um, that kind of enchanted view of, or just charged view of, like, the liturgical life, I think, is really, along those lines, really helpful. I heard your talk, really, uh, from a pastoral lens of thinking of how often our work as catechists and pastors we're dealing with people's memories. Um, oftentimes, people will come to my church, our parish, with a, uh, they're kind of loaded up already. They're not blank slates. They come in with memories. And you're working with their memories um, to disciple, to shape. And so... Um, in the same way that there's kind of counter-mystagogy or counter-formation, there's also, we're dealing with a, uh, a resituation of memories. You can't wipe their memories away. You can't even change them. But I think uh, um, with your idea about kind of the, the lo loci, the context, the background images, you can situate people's memories differently, I wonder. Um, and so it just, um, even thinking about my, in my own life, the way that this is, has worked, I memorized the creed while jogging with my dad, riding my bike, he was jogging, and I would memorize the creed. And so when I recall the creed, I actually am recalling those, I could tell where we were in, in those, those memories of the creed. It's a bizarre thing, but I have this really wonderful memory. Um, even, so it just goes to show you the power of, even I think of our class. I, when, I, when I read Gregory of Nyssa now, I imagine sitting outside, this is a plug for Neshota House, Sitting outside in the spring, <laughs> under you know, it was the summer um, in the beautiful under the beautiful trees, and just hearing the birds, and reading Gregory of Nyssa, I have these wonderful memories. Um, same thing with, so as parents, um, our kids, are, their memories of of who Jesus is, or stories around the dinner table. Did you hear about when Jesus healed the leper? Did I ever tell you this story? And so the, there's memory and context. Um, are powerful, and so it makes us, if we're aware of that as catechists, I think we can point to things the way, similar to the way that Jesus did with parables. You know, the kingdom of God's kind of like, well, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. I think we can situate um, biblical understanding stories, even scripture, in those contexts of memory. I think that's really powerful. Um, and this, not to keep going back and playing this old tape, but this is what happens liturgically, right? Um, even situating things like, you, you brought up liturgical catechesis, reading the gospel in the, um, among the people and then saying, uh, citing the scripture for the kind of the imaginative reasoning behind that. John 1, you know, of Jesus come fleshing blood, flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood. Um, we can hang scriptural content and ideas on these spatial memories, right? These, or even like Easter Vigil, you know, we'll read these readings ago. This reminds me of that one year with the Easter Vigil. I think it's really... So um, I w I'm thinking about all the power of this and reflecting on the fact that I teach a catechesis class in a cafeteria that's like whitewashed and smells like a dirty mop. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe, I mean, I could probably find a better space to teach about um, the basics of the faith. It just makes me wonder um, how I'm using my space, what the space is speaking to, how the space is forming memories. Um, and that's not necessarily bad. I'm sure there's ways you could like kind of spin that for some positive end. Um, but the use of hymns, the use of icons, um, the use of incense, all of this I think goes into play when finding spaces to store in our people's minds um, these biblical images and, and facts and um, the reality of God. Uh, and maybe the last thing I'll say about this, because I'm not making this up. Um, I, I, 
I was remembering, uh, I brought up Ambrose before, but in De Sacramentis, he, he talks, he asks key questions in his mystagogy, which are again, situational. Um, he says, you remember when the priest did this? Um, what do you think that meant? And so they're queuing up these memories, um, and then he uses Old Testament types to explain, let me tell you what that meant. And so it's, an, it's a powerful, like, mystagogical tool, I think, with discipleship of thinking of, um, tell me what, recall your testimony. Tell me when you first heard of Jesus. Or tell me a time in your life when you were really scared. And recovering that memory, bringing it into the present, and then reappropriating it, resituating it in a new biblical context hmm. is a, can be a really powerful way of doing catechesis. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? Absolutely. One of my mentors in catechesis, uh, Bill Blewett, uh, he would have his catechumens write their autobiography. And he did it all in the context of reading the, the Johannine story, The Woman at the Well. Mm. Um, and, and his way of, of working through this was, all of us have our own fullness of time moment. Uh, and he was, he was really driving home this idea that um, you're here, you're in this catechetical process, uh, God has a plan for it. That plan doesn't exist apart from your history or from your particular background or from the memories that you have, but will be as much a part of that as anything. Um, and, and to get you to think about it, get you to meditate on it, get you to consider it prayerfully. Um, so I, I find that really helpful. And, and, and to your point about the future, this is where I think it's, it actually makes a difference than moving forward in people's lives. So remember a time when you were fearful, um, and then Ambrose does the same thing. So this is, let me tell you what this means. Let me tell you what it means now as you participate in the Paschal Mystery, um, or as you ap approach the beatific vision in some small way, right, sacramentally. I wonder what this means now for the future. I wonder what the implications are for this memory that's now operative in the future. When you're afraid again, um, uh, alluding to kind of the, the, the virtue formation, the character formation, I wonder what, will, what that arc will, will bear for you mm -hmm. now, that, now that we know this about who God is and who you are. I wonder how you'll live differently now in the future, right? It's just a totally different way of um, discipling people into maturity to fight temptation as opposed to just behavior management or sin management. Does that make sense? I think that's really critical. Yeah. Well, and it I, leaves it with kind of this I wonder posture that gets them placing themselves into those moments as opposed to you giving some sort of edict, like this is what you should do, right? Well, I, I just think about what the practical implications would be of, of every Christian in all of our churches memorizing the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. That'd be a gigantic win, right? I think, <laughs> I think of having the, the, the horrible job of serving on a board of examining chaplains and just how many ordinance actually knew the Ten Commandments, which was abysmally bad. It was terrifying. And I'll tell you the story. One time I was being rather belligerent and, and refusing to give the go-ahead for ordination. And, uh, and the bishop said, do you, do you do not think that they might be remediated? And I said, no, fail them, fail them, fail them, fail them. <laughs> and, and the bishop said, well, well, well why? I mean, do, do, you think that, do you think that he shouldn't be ordained? And I said, he shouldn't have been confirmed. Because <laughs> the reality of it is that, that um, this wasn't just a slip of the memory. This was a failure of catechesis. Right? So I think that's something that, that, because I was sitting there thinking, horrified, well, so what happens when he has somebody with some moral quandary come into his office? What is he accessing? Um, 
to, to pastorally guide and, and, and even give comfort. Um, that's, that's a mess. And, and it seems to me that the foundation has to be set, you're very right about this, has to be set in the memory. It can't be set in some sort of other means. The memory serves as the foundation for everything that gets piled on top of it. Um, of course, we know this from classical education. That this is how it works. You, you lay the foundation of memory, you build on top of that. Um, but, but the, I think the other thing I'd say too, which is, which is, is this, that when it comes to uh, memorizing scripture in particular, one of the things that doesn't happen today is uh, that we know that we know that our people are reading scripture, right? The, the the engagement with scripture in a reading manner is off the charts. People read scripture all the time. The problem is that they're not memorizing it, which means that they can't regurgitate anything, which means that they can't think rhetorically about scripture, which means that their logic is not biblical. Um, and this is a this is a huge problem. It's a huge issue today. Um, and I, I think actually one of the roles that catechists can play, especially with children, is to aid memory of events, aid memory of passages, aid memory in all sorts of ways with engagement with scripture. Um, I think it's actually something our, our children's catechists do really well. Um, and not only that, but having them memorize catechism questions and answers, which I think takes it to a whole new level. Um, uh, so that's something to really, I think, hone in on, which is that the, the reformers' contribution in the, in the catechisms of the Reformation was simple. It was memorizable catechisms. If, if we're engaged in a, and this is kind of the, the, if we're engaged in a battle against Roman Catholicism, right, <laughs> then we have to arm them with all this stuff, right? Well, as it turns out, Roman Catholics are like, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We'll use it too. Uh, and, and whole generations, for 400 years, memorized catechisms. And then it's, I blame it on the Sunday school movement, uh, but, but it's basically, you, you, just, you just drop it in one generation. Um, because it's no longer expected, it's no longer considered um, uh, a part of this rigorous tradition, um, which, you know, some people were just formed in that still, it's, and it's an amazing gift. I mean, I can ask my kids in the middle of an afternoon, kids, what's the gospel? And they'll tell me. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a great gift to my family to be able to do that. Um, so that's just a thought, is, is if you have the ability, right, or you, if you have the means, uh, uh, Get this stuff in the hands of people who can, who can teach it, um, who, can, who can require the memorization of very simple, very straightforward things. Start with the Lord's Prayer, then the, then the Creed, then the Ten Commandments, um, and, uh, and watch it happen. It's exciting. Well, maybe one thing. Uh, in connection, sorry, in connection with what uh, Sean was saying about, um, uh, about Ambrose's De Sacramentis on sacraments, um, just a plug for, for, for St. Ambrose, really. That is one awesome book. If you haven't read it, <laughs> it's one you should read. It, it's, um, it, it's, it's not only great in that he, he basically goes through the sacraments of the church and so on, um, and, but, but it's also a great book. In, we're going to talk about biblical exegesis in the next section and what it has to do with catechesis. It's also a great book in how to read Scripture, um, typologically, right? And typological reading, about which we're going to be talking next, has everything to do with memory. Because it is how, how does the past, how do the past and the present, how, how do they link up with each other? 
Uh, do they just flow chronologically, the one to the next? Or, or is, does time function in a different way? Does time actually allow us to collapse events from past and present into one? And what, what memory, what the role of memory does is to make something present, do this in remembrance of me. It allows us to make something present. God makes something present to us. Um, biblically by saying, for example, um, uh, the um, sacrifice of Isaac is uh, linked to, typologically linked to the sacrifice of Christ. And they're not two separate events only, although in some sense, chronologically, obviously they are. But, but in another sense, they are not. And Ambrose's entire treatise basically, I think, is about that, to say there is a real presence of uh, of the of the later event, which is actually the the original event, the crystal the Christ event, there's a presence of the Christ event in these earlier events that 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 typify them, that foreshadow them. Uh, so that's a great great treatise. Um, you should all read. Yeah, memorize it. Memorize it. Yeah.